good to gather with you this morning if we have not yet had the privilege of meeting. My name is Isaac Whitney, and I'm one of the pastoral assistants here at Christ Church. This morning, we will hear from God's Word from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And so I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. If you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find our passage on or around page 238. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are represented by the large numbers, the verse numbers, by the small numbers, and we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So we're beginning our series on the life of David, and since we're uh, jumping into the middle of our book in uh, 1 Samuel, uh, it might be useful for us to just get a brief overview uh, of what has taken place up to this point. Uh, So the book of 1 Samuel is named after the prophet Samuel who acts as a judge for the people. He declares God's word to the people and the leaders of Israel. He's also been tasked with anointing and rejecting kings on behalf of the Lord. Uh, He has a number of different duties, but uh, in short, we see him as representing the voice of God to the people. And then it will also be helpful to point out that this narrative comes right on the heels of God rejecting Israel's first king, Saul, as the ruler over Israel. And Saul's reign was really actually pretty bad even before it began. So in chapters 8 through 10, even though he appears to be the kind of person that we would want to be king, he is ultimately presented as foolish, as unwilling, as incapable But most importantly, he is presented as disobedient. He doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord. In chapters 13 and 14, he makes an unauthorized offering and later a hasty vow. And then in chapter 15, Saul disobeys the Lord again. And so God tells him through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom has been taken from him and given to one of his neighbors. So here in chapter 16, we meet that neighbor for the first time. 1 Samuel, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that you are a holy and righteous God, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. This word is truth, 
This word is God-breathed. This word is profitable in all things. And this word is the way unto salvation in Jesus Christ. And to that end, we ask that you would make this word be brought to bear on our lives this morning. Use it to convict us of our sin, to show us your righteousness, and to show us your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits in care paravel enthroned, the evil time will be over and done. Some of you may recognize this prophecy from C.S. Lewis's first installment of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the story, this prophecy predicts that uh, the end of the eternal winter in Narnia, the rule of the evil witch and the restoration of the land, will come about with the enthronement of a select few kings and queens, which are called in Lewis's book, Sons of Adam and Daughters of Eve. A weary and darkened land, devoid of joy, of life, of sunshine, groans until it's placed under the righteous rule of the rightful nobility. As a teacher of mine has noted, the the conflict of this story in the Chronicles of Narnia is, is analogous to the story of the Bible. So throughout the pages of Scripture, we see uh, the picture of a world that has been plunged in sin, steeped in rebellion against its creator, who is the ultimate ruler of all things in heaven and on earth. God's plan to govern creation through a kingdom under the rule of his obedient king has been rejected by his creatures who prefer to rule on their own terms and according to their own desires. And so because of this, we see a world enveloped in chaos and murder and wickedness. But we see also that, that God has not given up on his desire to rule over the universe through a righteous kingdom under an obedient king. In fact, right after the, the whole thing goes awry in, in Genesis 3, we see the promise that one son of Adam will arise to restore this right rule over the world. And so this story uh, progresses until we find ourselves in the midst of the nation of Israel, God's chosen and holy people, uh, through whom he has promised to establish his kingdom. Yet even this holy and set-apart nation, we are told, has rejected God's rule, just like the rest of the nations. And just like the rest of the nations, Israel is itself plunged in chaos and in disarray. At the end of the book of Judges, which forms the background of 1 Samuel, which we are studying today, tells us that there was no king in Israel, and that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So when we come to our passage today, we are still in a period of waiting, of watching, and of anticipating. God's people are still in need of a king to mediate God's rule. We are still looking for Adam's flesh and Adam's bone to assume the royal throne so that the evil time can be over and done. Yet this anticipation in 1 Samuel 16 has come to a very pivotal moment. There is excitement and anxiety and anticipation that are all blended together in this passage. Uh, See, in this passage, at this point, God's people of Israel have already been given a king. But this king has not turned out the way that we would hope. It turns out that far from being the obedience royal that we were expecting and hoping for, he, just like everyone else, has rejected and disobeyed the Lord. And so God has rejected him as being king. So this brings us to a very pivotal moment in in Israel's history where the throne of the kingdom appears to be hanging in the balance. The first king has been rejected Will God provide another? And in this story this morning, we will see that God has, in fact, provided for himself another. But it's not the kind that we would expect. This insight from our text today leads us to this exhortation. Follow God's obedient king, not what appears high and exalted. Follow God's obedient king, not what appears high and exalted. And this exhortation will be informed by two stages 
of this story. First, a tale of two kings. And second, an unlikely king is chosen. Notice first, a tale of two kings. Let's read again verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. One way that we can frame much of the story of 1 Samuel is by thinking about it as a tale of two kings. So from the people's requesting a king in chapter 8 to Saul's anointing in chapter 10, to his replacement in David, to Saul's desperation to keep the throne from David, 1 Samuel gives us a drama between these two figures. But behind this tale of two kings, the Bible gives us two visions of two different kinds of kings. There is the world's vision for the ideal king, which is marked by worldly pictures of might and power and wealth. And then there's God's picture of the ideal king, which is identified as obedience to God and his word. And so to see how uh, these two visions helps inform the tale of the two kings in 1 Samuel, uh, I invite you to turn with me back to to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on or around page 160, 160. So here in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the people of Israel God's law his second time just before entering into the promised land. And then here in chapter 17, in verses 14 through 20, which we're about to read, Moses gives a forecast of what the people will ask for when they are established in the land. So chapter 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, one who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire himself excessive silver and gold." And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children. In Israel. So when the people enter into the promised land that they are being given, it's clear that the Lord God is the ultimate king and judge and ruler of the people. But as we've seen, God ultimately desires to exercise this rule through a chosen king over this holy nation. And so the idea of the king itself is not wrong. What is wrong is the kind of king that Moses says the people will want. The people will look around them at the formidable nations. They'll see tall and mighty kings. They'll see conquering warriors. They'll see grand armies. And they will see these things among the nations. And they will say, that's what we want. We want a strong man who will fight our battles. But in desiring this, they they actually reject God's rule. Because they are forgetting that it is God who fights their battles. The vision that God wants for his kingdom is something entirely distinct from the nations. He ultimately wants a king who is obedient to his word. 
What brings God's people flourishing is not the ruler that looks mighty by earthly standards, but the one whose heart is in submission to the Lord. So these are the two visions of the two kinds of kings that help inform the setting of our passage. So now with this in mind, turn, turn with me back to 1 Samuel, and we'll look, be looking at uh, chapter 8. And so here in chapter 8, we see a near picture-perfect fulfillment of Moses' prediction. So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I have brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And now skipping down a little bit to verse 19 in chapter 8. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So just as Moses has said, the people of Israel, who up to this point have endured cycles of war and battles and oppression with their enemies, have looked out to the nations and decided that they want someone with worldly symbols of might and worldly symbols of power to fight their battles. So in terms of the two visions of the two kinds of kings that they might have over them, they have not chosen the kind that is obedient to the Lord but the kind that looks like the nations around them. And so this is the kind of king that they end up with. Drop down uh, to the next verse in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Israel's first king, Saul, is the picture of the exact kind of person the nations would want leading them. He's a man who comes from wealth. He is physically domineering, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He is the exact person someone in Israel's day and age would expect to be the best kind of king. But Saul is the kind of king the nations desire, not the kind of king that God desires. He doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord. He doesn't obey the commandments of the law. He's a man of folly. He's not a man after God's own heart. He's a man who longs for his own power, for his own prestige, and his own influence. And we see this emphasized in our own text this morning in chapter 16 and verse 2. Which says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Saul, when the kingdom is taken from him in chapter 15, reveals the kind of leader he is both in this passage and throughout the rest of the book. He is one who desires his position for his own advantage and will resort to violence in order to keep it. The narrative of 1 Samuel 16 has set us up for this moment where the king who is strong and mighty according to the standards of the world has been condemned and rejected in favor of another kind of king. Chapter 16 verses 1 through 5 gives us a decisive pivot from Saul into another king that God has chosen. In verse 1, right after telling Saul the Lord has rejected him, Samuel barely has time to go home before he's commissioned to anoint the next king. The old king is being left behind in favor of the new king. The rejection of the first has been decisive, 
the choosing of the second is immediately taking place. The failure and disobedience and rebellion of the first king is a tragedy, but Samuel, along with the reader, is given no time to grieve over this failure. We're given no time to wonder if God still has a plan for his kingdom. As soon as Saul's kingship is rejected, we are assured that God has provided for himself a king. And so there are a couple of things that we can observe from the tale of two kings. Uh, so if you're taking notes here, the, there are two subpoints under our first main point. So first subpoint, we can observe a picture of good and bad authority. So our world today, you might say, is experiencing uh, a lot of anxiety around the topic of authority. So on the one hand, our cultural ethos, broadly speaking, chafes against the idea of authority. Uh, but then in response, there are many who are, are clamoring for a kind of strong man, kind of strong man authority that subdues his enemies, whomever they may be. Uh, but I also recognize that the topic of authority uh, is difficult because of how much abuse of authority has taken place and is being brought to light, both inside and outside the church. And I also know that some of you here today have been on the receiving end of various kinds of abuse, such that to even speak of authority is something that might be painful for you. And if that describes your experience today, I would first like to say that, that this reality is something that we here at Christ Church uh, feel deep sorrow and regret for. And we would also desire to help show you how Jesus Christ can meet us in our brokenness. And if this is something that, that describes you today, please feel free to speak with any one of our pastors or male or female deacons. If you'd like to know who they are, you can find photos of them on our website. But another thing that I would like us to notice is that God hates the abuse of authority. He rejects and he severely punishes the abuser. But God doesn't simply hate the abuse of authority. He also desires that it be practiced well. His response to an abuser like Saul is not to go back to the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel. Instead, he looks to appoint a king who is in line with his vision of good authority. That is, he desires a leader who is first and foremost obedient to him and his word. And so allow me to, to address all of those who hold positions of authority with this truth. To exercise good authority that promotes the well-being of all that has been entrusted to you, you must firstly and above all else be obedient to God's commands. So husbands, are you being obedient husbands? Parents, are you being obedient parents? At teens and students who have perhaps been entrusted with the authority to steward a possession like, uh, like a car or an education or a pet, are you being obedient in stewarding what you've been given? Bosses, coaches, pastors who are among us, are you being obedient to God's commands in your positions of authority? Because good authority does not exercise it for one's own good, but for the good of all who have been entrusted to his or her care. Like the shepherd that we are about to meet, good and godly leaders are to be firm, to steer those in their care away from danger, yet gentle to lead them to green pastures. The second thing that we can note, so this is subpoint number two, uh, is from, this, is, uh, from this tale of two kings, uh, is that this tale of two kings represents to us uh, a kind of small picture or a microcosm of redemptive history. Uh, New Testament passages such as Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 give us a picture of our first father Adam, uh, who was a, a kind of king himself, uh, being disobedient in his task. And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, restoring humanity to its destiny through his obedience to the Father where the first Adam had failed. And this tale of two Adams is fundamentally a tale of two kings. Just as Saul's disobedient rule makes way for the ascension of the obedient King David, so too does our father Adam's disobedient rule make way for the ascension of the obedient, true, and better David. 
the disobedience of the first king brings chaos and destruction to God's blossoming kingdom. The second king is chosen to obediently rule over a kingdom by God's design. Gloria Furman has helped illustrate this gospel structure in, in a children's book called A Tale of Two Kings, uh, which I would recommend to, to parents uh, who are hoping to craft a, a well-rounded picture of the gospel for their children. And as a side note, our church has ordered two copies of this book. So if you're a parent with kids aged three to eight and you'd be interested in this resource, uh, please come see me after the service and reserve a copy and we can get those to you uh, as, soon, uh, as soon as they arrive. Now, Gloria Furman writes in the book, God gave Adam a special kind of job, the kind of work a king would do. His job was to take care of a beautiful garden and to fill the earth with more people to be God's representatives. She goes on to say later, but Adam failed his royal job. Adam followed Satan, God's enemy, to bring evil into the garden. Adam may as well have said to God, I don't want to do it. I want to do it my way and not your way. My friends, praise God that this story doesn't end with Adam. Instead, God chose for himself a man after his own heart. The eternal Son of God made flesh and born in the line of David in the city of Bethlehem where our story takes place today. Who would be obedient to the Father where Adam was not. Where his ancestor David was not. He would be obedient unto death on a cross bearing the penalty for sin that the first Adam brought upon us all. And as a result, God the Father has raised him from the dead and highly exalted him to the eternal throne of David, where he rules even now over God's eternal kingdom. When Saul, the first king of Israel, was rejected for his disobedience, God asked Samuel this question in verse 1. How long will you grieve for Saul? For I have provided for myself a king from among the sons of Jesse. When Adam, the first king amongst humanity, was rejected for his disobedience, God promises that another will come to restore God's rightful rule in Genesis 3.15. And this promise has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And this fulfillment of this promise asks us this morning, how long will you grieve for Adam? For God has provided for himself a king from among the descendants of Jesse. Samuel grieves the rejection of the disobedient Saul. It has led the kingdom into rebellion and disarray. It is the source of conflict and strife. It creates the appearance that God's righteous rule will not be brought to completion. But this grief is cut short by the promise of another king after God's own heart. Friends, here this morning we likewise grieve the rejection of the disobedient Adam. Because of Adam's disobedience, this world has been thrown into despair. Humans take up the, the sword against each other in war. Nations and people vie for power and subjugate and enslave each other. And many of us this morning grieve our weaknesses, our illnesses and frailties. We grieve the loss of loved ones. We grieve broken and failed marriages. And we grieve when marriage is not given. We grieve rebellious children, and we grieve infertility. We grieve financial hardship, and we grieve weariness from constant labor. We grieve the sins that we have committed that have made a shipwreck of our lives, and we grieve the sins that we struggle to put to death. Friends, the promise of a new tomorrow in Christ Jesus does not mean that the grief of today is not real. But what it does mean is that this grief will be cut short. For God has provided for himself a king who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who had the iniquity of us all laid upon him so that God's eternal rule and his eternal kingdom will be brought to completion at his return. So for those of you who are among us who would not call yourself a Christian, I'd like to first say that we are glad that you are with us. You are always welcome here at our services of worship, but I'd like to appeal to you from this tale of two kings. See, in 1 Samuel, we eventually see that the people can be loyal to one of two kings. You can be represented by Saul, or you can be represented by David. 
In a similar way, in the, the Bible's big story of two kings, you can be represented by only one or the other. You can be under the representation of Adam, or you can be under the representation of Christ. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. And God's Word tells us that, that when we are represented by Adam, we are fundamentally at enmity with God. We are in rebellion against Him and His righteous rule. We have decided to seek our own good rather than God's or our neighbor's. And because of this, we stand under His just condemnation and will face the punishment of God's eternal wrath unless we turn from our sins, from our love of self, and submit ourselves to His rule. And the good news here is that you are able to do that in Christ Jesus. Because He took on Himself the punishment For the sin that his people deserve on the cross, you too can be saved from the punishment for sin and be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom if you trust in him and submit to his rule. It may seem like the world can offer you more, but his kingdom is not of this world. And so I invite you to come and follow this obedient king, not what appears high and exalted. Returning to 1 Samuel 16, we see the pivot from the disobedient Saul to another that God has chosen for himself. But this king is not everything that one might expect him to be. And that leads us to our second point this morning. An unlikely king is chosen. Let's read verses 6 through 13 again. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel has arrived in Bethlehem and has gathered Jesse and his sons to anoint one of them as king at God's choosing. But we quickly learn that whatever expectations Samuel or anyone might have had about Saul's replacement must be readjusted, must be put in check. In verse 6, when the prophet looks on the first of Jesse's sons, he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And whatever kind of reasoning Samuel might have been using is revealed by God's response in verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. In other words, God is saying that the king of God's people is not to be evaluated by worldly standards. God has no need to rule through a leader with worldly conceptions of might and power. In fact, the king that God has just rejected had all of that and more. Recall what we read earlier, that that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was the most handsome person in Israel, that that he came from wealth. But how did his rule turn out? The point is not that outward beauty or strength are intrinsically bad in and of themselves, Okay, God is not opposed to tall people. The point is that while Israel wants a king who is like the nations, God wants a king who is after his own heart. The human heart makes it so that Israel is prone to evaluate their leader by worldly standards. God's heart evaluates the king of his people by his obedience. So this leads into the Lord's next words in verse 7 where he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. If we can just pause here for a moment, I'd like us uh, to use this statement uh, that the Lord sees not as man sees to remind us just how different God is from us. 
So just a few, few verses earlier in chapter 15, verse 29, we read that, that God will not lie and have regret, for he is not as man who has regret. And just here we see that God sees not as man sees. And so here it's, it's useful for us to, to pause and reflect because we're often so prone to, to create conceptions of God that just map onto our, our personal preferences. We, we, we often just end up fashioning a God who, who looks just like us. But meanwhile, this passage is, is telling us, uh, well, no, God is not like us. See, we often, we often think of the difference between God and humanity as one of magnitude or one of degree, but not of kind. In other words, we tend to think that, that God is just the greatest thing in the universe, that whatever measuring units we use to measure distance or time or morality, that God is just the greatest of all of those. But we forget that God is in his own category. Okay, our, our units of measurements just don't apply to him. He is the creator and we are the creature. And the significance of this for our passage today is that God has no need for the king of his people to be mighty by the standards of the nations. Yeah, he's God. He made the nations. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't work through the natural or ordinary means to accomplish his ends, but it is to say that he is not dependent upon them. So this leads to him concluding in verse 7 that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And this statement confirms that he has no need for the king of his people to possess worldly might or worldly power. He desires the king to be a man after his own heart, to be one who is obedient to his commandments, who delights in his law, who leads the people without regard for his own advantage, and who seeks the Lord's glory above all else. And so this priority of the heart over worldly pictures of strength and stature leads to the selection of an unlikely candidate for king. In fact, he's unexpected to the point where, where no one in this story thinks to stop and say, hey, maybe we should go and get our other brother. David doesn't, doesn't seem at this point to, seem, uh, to have the worldly advantage of Eliab and having some level of magnificent stat- stature or strength. He doesn't have the advantage of being the firstborn or the secondborn or even the seventhborn. But what he is, is an obedient servant of the Lord, a man after God's own heart. Samuel says in chapter 13, verse 14, speaking to Saul, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. David is not the first person we would expect to be chosen as king. He doesn't have the same qualities the world would expect to have in their king, unlike Saul or unlike some of his brothers. But also unlike Saul, he is a humble servant who is obedient to God's commands. And also unlike Saul, he is faithful over what his father has entrusted to him. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me back to, briefly, back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, where we'll look at verses 3 and 4. So we don't, have, uh, we don't have time to read the entire account of Saul's anointing, but I want to give you a picture of what Saul is doing when he is first anointed by Samuel to be Israel's king. So keep in mind uh, here in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, that this is the context in which Saul is anointed as king. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Now turn back in our passage uh, to our passage uh, in chapter 16, uh, and we'll look again at verse 11. And so now compare what Saul was doing when he was anointed as king what we find David doing when he's called to be anointed as king. So looking now at, at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
So in contrast to Saul, David is an obedient servant, a man after God's own heart. And he is also one who is a faithful steward over what his father has given to him. Saul is unable to find what belongs to his father. Meanwhile, David is faithfully tending to his father's sheep. Prior to being selected and anointed as king, David is already doing the the kind of kingly work that God desires from his leader. In fact, David's kingship and the kings of Israel more broadly will later be described as the shepherd of God's people. And also at the conclusion of this passage, when David is anointed in verse 13, we're told that uh, unlike Saul, the Holy Spirit will remain upon and empower David for the rest of, this, for the rest of his life. And so all of this data combined together is to say that the text is telling us this is the true king because this is the kind of person that we should be looking for to rule. Israel shouldn't desire someone who is strong and mighty by the nation's standards, but should first evaluate him by God's standards, seeking one who is after God's own heart, who is obedient and is faithful over what has been entrusted to him. Now, this is not to say, and as some of you may have noticed, that David's appearance is described in glowing terms. He is ruddy and handsome with beautiful eyes. But we need to read this with verse 7 reminding us that whatever external qualities that David possesses are not the main grounds for him being fit to be king. God looks for a man after his own heart and has chosen a man after his own heart. One who is obedient and faithful to steward what has been put under his leadership. So friends, let's, let's pause again and reflect on the question. Are you faithful over what has been entrusted to you? Are you stewarding what has been put under your authority well? Some of us may be thinking to ourselves that that we're not in a position of authority. We have nothing to steward well. We have nothing to be faithful with. To that, I'd like to to read the following passage from, from Jonathan Lehman's new book on authority, where he says, You have authority. Everyone does, even if you're a 13-year-old and have rule only over your bedroom or the thoughts inside your head. You have dominion over something, perhaps some plot of dirt like Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you view that plot of dirt as a stewardship given by God? Are you using your authority to create life, prosperity, and vitality for others? Or do you look at your domain and say, it's mine? And use it for your own purposes and glory. And I might also add and ask whether we say to ourselves that the amount that has been entrusted to us is so little that we would need to be given more in order to start being faithful in obedience. But friends, if we are not faithful over a little, neither will will we be faithful over much. So whether that's more tangible resources such as time or finances, or something like your giftings, a position at work, an office, in your church, your place, in your household, you have been given a responsibility to cultivate whatever it is that God has entrusted to you for the building up of others and especially for his church. And some of us may also be thinking to ourselves that we have so little to contribute to the building of this church. We might say, I'm not a gifted teacher or interpreter of the Bible, I'm an introvert and struggle to to know how to encourage people. I'm uncomfortable around kids. I'm not a good musician. I don't have much time. I don't have much money to give. I'm burdened by suffering and will only burden others. I'm burdened by sin and will only burden others. I don't know how to pray as I ought. We may look at those who are around us and see them as more intelligent than us, more put together than us, more accomplished than us, more well-versed in the Bible than us, more prayerful than us, as having more resources than us. And we might be prone to think, how can I possibly contribute in the life of this church? But church, this kind of thinking is the same kind of thinking that Israel fell victim to when they sought a king that was strong and mighty by the standards of the nations. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. 
The Lord desires not worldly standards of contribution or accomplishment for the building up of his church. Yet he, is, he is not bound to these things. He can and will build his church with or without them. No, the Lord desires to build his church through the everyday acts of faithfulness and obedience of his people. So you, are, you are faithful when you are regular in your attendance, in your singing together as a congregation, in your participation in the word and sacraments. These things, these practices are an act of faithfulness and they are a gift that help build up the church. Your prayers for other members are an act of faithfulness and a gift to the church. Your willingness to meet with other members to read the word and to pray, even if you struggle to understand it, is an act of faithful stewardship over what you have been given and a gift to the church. Because God desires a heart of obedience and faithfulness over worldly conceptions of strength and might, those whom he chooses to further his kingdom are often the ones that we would not expect. The anointing of David, the humble shepherd boy from the little town of Bethlehem, is an unlikely anointing. He is unlike who we might first expect to lead God's people and to defeat their enemies. But this humble and obedient shepherd king will prove to be but a faint shadow of his descendant, the true and better shepherd king. This Jesus Christ, the son of David, would receive a humble birth in this town of Bethlehem in a feeding trough and not in a palace. He would come from a lowly hometown and associate himself with the lowly outcast and downtrodden. And like David, but in a perfect and in a complete way, he would walk in the power of the Spirit and would be obedient and faithful to all that the Father had given to him. And he would be obedient to the most unlikely and most unexpected place a king can go, where he receives his coronation not on a throne, but on a cross, where he suffered and died the death that you and I deserve, that you and I might be saved if we repent and believe in him. Friends, this unexpected, scandalous obedience unto death on a cross is the grounds of his resurrection, his exaltation to the Father's right hand, and inheritance of the eternal throne of David in a kingdom that shall have no end. The unlikely, the humble, obedient shepherd King David is only a sign and a foreshadow of the unlikely King Jesus, the sign of whose present reign is the cross. So friends, I invite you, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, come and follow this obedient king and not what appears high and exalted. And so as we're confronted with this reality of our crucified Lord and Savior and King, I'd like to to reflect by way of application on the following question. What do you expect the king of your life to bring you? And how does our crucified king confront this? What do you expect the king of your life to bring you? And how does our crucified king confront this? Another way that we might say this is by saying, if you desire flourishing, happiness, wisdom, or decess as defined by the world, you will devote your life and follow those things that seem to offer these worldly conceptions of the good. And this reality is what makes our crucified king so strange and so unexpected. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about how the crucified king is an offense and a stumbling block to the Greeks who seek worldly conceptions of wisdom and the Jews who seek worldly conceptions of power. So based on this, we, we can say that if you desire wisdom as the world defines it, then the cross will look like folly. If you desire power as the world defines it, then the cross will look like weakness. If you desire freedom or autonomy as the world defines it, then the cross will look like slavery. If you desire success as the world defines it, then the cross will look like failure. And if you desire life as the world defines it, then the cross will look like failure. And the cross will look like death. Following a crucified king confronts 
our worldly desires because it calls us not simply to come and lay them down at the foot of the cross, but to be crucified along with our Lord, to share in his sufferings by submitting to his rule and by following and obeying his commands wherever they might lead us. Friends, the amazing news of the gospel is that to be crucified with Christ, to suffer with him in your obedience and faithfulness to what you have been entrusted is to share in his resurrection life. Friends, to suffer with him is to reign with him. But the astonishing thing about the cross of Christ is not simply that it confronts our desires, but it fulfills them in the way that our hearts were truly made to enjoy them. So if you want wisdom, come to the cross and taste in the eternal word of God who has created and ordered everything in existence. If you want power, come to the cross and taste in the mighty arm of the Lord who has defeated the power of death. If you want freedom, come to the cross and be set free from the bondage of the slavery of sin. And if you want life, come to the cross and receive life to the full where you can have fellowship with the living God. Come to the cross and follow the obedient king, not what appears high and exalted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for our humble and obedient King, Jesus Christ. He is the true and better Adam, the true and better David. He was perfect in every way, and every way he was obedient. Yet he was despised and rejected by men to the point of death on a cross. And Father, as we are reminded of what he has done for us, we ask that you might please help us and not to strive for worldly conceptions of honor, of might, and authority. We ask that you would help us to follow the humble and obedient King Jesus for fellowship and life ever after with you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.